In the 1960s, the Federal Bureau of Investigation spied on civil rights leaders, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Today's guests tell that story in a powerful documentary that shines a light on race, power, and the politics of personal destruction. There's Sam Pollard and Benjamin Hadid this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Joining me, as always, is my great friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week, we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, journalists, filmmakers, and more, to make sense of the big stories shaping public life in the United States today. This week, we're joined by the moving force behind a remarkable new documentary, MLK FBI, Joining us today is director Sam Pollard and writer-producer Benjamin Hedin. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having us, guys. Well, the film is really remarkable, powerful, timely. I, 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 I stress myself to think of all the adjectives that I want to use to describe it. But uh, Sam, for our audience, can you give us just a, a quick overview of the film itself? Well, the film looks at uh, Dr. King's ascendancy in the 50s and early 60s. And after he did his March on Washington, I Have a Dream speech, uh, the FBI, led by J. Edgar Hoover, said he's the most dangerous Negro in America. And so their job from that point on was to discredit and destroy his reputation. They initially started by surveilling, wiretapping him with the, with the consent of the Attorney General, Bobby Kennedy, uh, because they thought he was flirting with communism because of his very close relationship with a gentleman named Stanley Levinson, who had been a former member of the Communist Party. But in wiretapping Dr. King and his associates, they realized and learned that he was having affairs with other women besides his wife, Coretta Scott King. So they then went on that track to not only wiretap, but bug his hotel rooms where he traveled around the country. And they, they, they gathered together a lot of information of Dr. King with other women and other situations. And they tried to get the press to grab onto it, but the press didn't. And then they went so far as to create a letter, basically written, written by William Sullivan, telling King, we know what you've done, we know who you are, and you have, something, you have to do something about it. And basically intimating that he should kill himself. And on top of that, not only writing that letter, they also sent an audio tape to his wife, Coretta Scott, supposedly of Dr. King in a situation with other women. So it was the story of King's ascendancy and the struggles he had to face at the same time as he was being surveilled by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, looking at and, dis and digging into the mythology of the FBI. And the FBI would have kept monitoring and surveilling King, except for his assassination on April 4th, 1968. So, Ben, why was King such a threat to the FBI and specifically to J. Edgar Hoover? the longtime director and the director at that time. What, what was it about King that alarmed him, disturbed him? Why was he a threat? <clears throat> you know, first off, I, I would say his popularity. You know, Hoover's FBI surveilled everyone. You know, they surveilled Malcolm X. 
and other black activists, but none of them um, had the force that King had, um, you know, regionally, you know, across different audiences in the United States. Um, that was what most alarmed him. And then, you know, I think that, you know, Hoover, um, he couldn't control King. You know, I mean, he had relationships with figures at the NAACP, um, but King was sort of beyond the pale. And that's what I think he feared the most. Well, King's race obviously was a factor in, in that fear. Yeah, no question. You know, Hoover, Washington, D.C. native, you know, at a time when D.C. was a thoroughly southern city, came of age early in the 20th century. Um, you know, no, no black agents in the FBI. Um, the only African-Americans that Hoover interacted with um, drove his car and served him food. So, yeah, that goes without saying. Sam, I was I was struck watching the film by, I guess it's the enduring power of Martin Luther King Jr.'s message uh, and the power of the person. Um, why why do you think that message is still so relevant and so timely and so powerful today? It's, it's really relevant today, you know, Jim, because Dr. King was a, a nonviolent civil rights activist, a radical in his own time, who basically was saying, if we want change, we have to approach it in a peaceful, nonviolent way. And you saw the, the impact and the effect of that in the 50s and the 60s, breaking the back of segregation in cities like, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, Albany, Georgia, Selma, Alabama, Alabama. You know, he and his cohorts were really focused you know, that they knew they wanted to change the way we were looked at, African-Americans were looked at in the world. We he felt we should no, should, should no longer be second-class citizens. And I think this sense of nonviolent activism, this, this, this sort of real purpose and, and energy is something that people still hold on to today. I mean, that's why he's, he's such an iconic presence in America and world history. So the FBI was initially interested in King because of his uh, association with with a communist or a former communist. And so that's one thing. Uh, but they go so much further, if that's the right word, in terms of investigating his personal life. Why would they go there? I mean, what, what were they hoping to achieve? I guess besides completely discrediting him, but they even went beyond that. So maybe both of you could take a crack at that. Well, think of it this way. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover and William Sullivan, who's one of his closest lieutenants, their feeling was they had to try to do anything they could to destroy Dr. King. Because as Ben said, he was very popular. I mean, I was saying to someone the other day that as a young African-American who grew up in the 60s, in our household, we had three images in our living room. Martin Luther King, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and Jesus Christ. That shows you how popular he was in many African-American households. And for, and for Diego Hoover to see that and to see all of those people, you know, in, in, in the March in Washington, it had to be absolutely threatening. And Ben's right. He was a man who grew up in the South, you know, whose attitude about Black people were they were in the shadows. They were on the fringes. All of a sudden, this man is having people rise up like Moses, taking them to the promised land. That scared the bejesus out of Jag Hoover, those people in the FBI. So, Robert, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ben. No, no. I, I was just gonna gonna add that you know while I you know Hoover did surveil everyone, um, once he sort of lights on King's personal life, 
we do move into a unique territory where it becomes an active campaign of blackmail. Um, and it's, it's far beyond just wiretapping and monitoring his travel and his conversations. But it does, it does become government-sponsored character assassination. And that's not something you're going to find uh, with, with the FBI, even in Hoover's bureau when it was essentially a lawless entity. Uh, that's, that, that's actually the question that, I, that, that that provoked in my mind. How is that legal? It wasn't legal. It wasn't legal at all. You're not supposed to go that far. I mean, they went they went beyond the panel. That's not legal to do that. You know, I mean, he had got, you know, Bobby Kennedy to signed off on, on you know, wiretapping um, Dr. King because of the communist thing, because everybody was afraid of communism. You know, everybody knew this was the period of the Red Scare. So that was valid in terms of Bobby Kennedy signing off on that. Now, who knows if Bobby Kennedy how far, if Bobby Kennedy knew how far Hoover and his associates were going when they start to, you know, bug these hotel rooms. You know, I'm not sure if Bobby Kennedy knew about it or if he turned a blind eye to it. Yeah. Does it change our interpretation or our understanding of Bobby Kennedy's role in the in the 1960s and the and his relationship with the civil rights movement in general? This is what I would say. As we all know, Bobby Kennedy went through an evolution. You know, he went through a change. I mean, he had a certain attitude and philosophy in the late 50s and early 60s. But by the time, as we all know, he ran for president, you know, he had evolved. I mean, there's this great story that Harry Belafonte tells about how Bobby Kennedy came to his house when Dr. King was there and other activists were, activists were there. And they put Bobby Kennedy's feet to the fire about his philosophies and attitudes. And I think Bobby Kennedy, you know, he had a reckoning. He came to an awakening about what he needed to do if he was one to help change America. So JFK is assassinated and uh, obviously Lyndon Baines Johnson becomes president. And so uh, the FBI's infatuation or, or whatever the word here is, continues under LBJ. What was his role in, in this well, I, I mean, you know, it, in some ways it goes back to what Jim just said. It, uh, it wasn't, it's worse than that it was illegal or that this activity wasn't sanctioned by law is that it, it wasn't particularly a, a secretive, you know, um, Sam's right. Newspapers wouldn't jump on it, but it, most powerful people in Washington knew it was going on. And, and that includes LBJ, you know, um, a consummate womanizer in his own right. Um, he, he loved listening to the tapes, you know, they had high entertainment value for him. So, you know, uh, he's obviously what he did to get the voting rights act passed was monumental. And it meant that he was bonded with King in a sense in the public sphere, but that doesn't mean he discouraged or dissuaded Hoover from continuing to monitor King. I'm curious about the role of the press. Use the term uh, that they did not jump on this. Why? It was a different time. It was a different world we lived in at the time. I mean, the press's job at that time was to look at politicians just from the sort of their political perspective. They didn't go into their personal lives like we do today, like the press does today. I mean, everything is fair game today. But back then, they knew about a lot of these dark secrets of these people. I mean, they knew about John Kennedy's affairs. They knew about LBJ. Right. They, didn't, they didn't go there back then. I mean, it was a it was a different sort of philosophy about how you approach and and report these politicians. You know, I I um, 
I, one of the things that really struck me was the the portion of the film that focuses on the Nobel Peace Prize that Dr. King received, and the the it seemed the the reaction from J. Edgar Hoover was to pick a public feud uh, with with him and call him a liar. Um, what so irked Hoover about King receiving the Nobel Peace Prize? Well, here here's a man. He's his agents have been t wiretapping and, and bugging and then learning that he's not monogamous, that he has affairs and he probably drinks. I think he even smoked Dr. King, you know, this is supposed to be a good Christian man, you know, and then this man's getting the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, for, for J. Edgar Hoover, that's like a major slap in the face, you know, it's like, how can you give this man the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, because he's basically deceitful, you know, he's a, he's an adulterer, you know, this is horrible. It's, 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 it's almost a sense of, uh, I know things you don't know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's remarkable. So after the Nobel Prize, uh, the FBI, Hoover, go directly after King's wife, which is where things become really vicious and, and, and horrible. Why? Why go after his wife? Well, it was an accident that she opened the package. Uh, the package was sent to the office. Um, you know, the FBI, they sent it, they, they had an agent mail it from Florida, so it, it wouldn't be back from D.C., but, um, you know, it arrives at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Atlanta, and because there's a tape inside, they, they give it to Coretta because she kept an archive of his speeches, and speeches would often arrive on reel-to-reel -reel tape. And then she opens it, and then, you know, she, she realizes that it's this super supposedly, you know, an anthology of um, audio clips of her husband having affairs, um, you know, with this letter like, inside. It was written by the head of domestic intelligence, William Sullivan, um, claiming to be a, a, a disaffected black leader who felt betrayed by King and was threatening to reveal all of King's secrets in Oh, I don't know. It's like 31 days, I believe, which um, probably coincided with Christmas of 1964. And it says there's only one thing left to do. You know what it is. You know what it is. Yeah. And, and she interpreted that and others interpreted that as being a suggestion that he needed to commit suicide. That was the interpretation. Yeah. yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure you can read it any other way. I mean, you know, publicly step aside as from retire from public life as a leader that i mean maybe but it, it's pretty hard to see it as anything other than suicide and you know one of the questions that that lingered in my head was uh i think there's a question about the, the, it seems like the question is pretty well resolved about whether or not uh he was monogamous uh but is were the were the audio tapes was all of the evidence that they that they tried to leak was it all legitimate or was there disinformation to borrow a seemingly contemporary word that was mixed in with it. Uh, I would say this, Jim, I'm an editor for many years and I would believe very strongly that they doctored those tapes, that they edited those tapes for their own purpose, you know? So, so trust me, I've edited lots of stuff and I know how to doctor stuff too. So <laughs> <laughs> they, they definitely edited those tapes. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend 
on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who's an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guests this week are Sam Pollard and Benjamin Hedin. Sam directed and Ben wrote MLK FBI, a powerful, timely, and ultimately troubling documentary about the FBI surveillance of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Sam's not on Twitter, but you can find Ben at Benjamin Hedin. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-H-E-D-I-N. And we want to give a special thanks this week to our friends at Newport Film and the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities Culture is Key Project for bringing this film and its makers to us. Did you come across any suggestion or evidence that there might have been a would-be whistleblower inside the FBI? I mean, today, whistleblowers are fairly well-known or common or at least sometimes, you know, do the right thing. Any evidence that that this was the case back then? Somebody in in Hoover's inner circle or somebody on the periphery who might have known about this and might have wanted to blow the whistle? No, I mean, not even no evidence. I it would be hard to admit even the possibility of that just because Hoover was so feared and because he hired and encouraged agents in his own image. Um, you know, again, your earlier question about LBJ, LBJ was scared of Hoover. You know, the, the FBI had a mandatory retirement age when Hoover reached that LBJ went around it by creating him, appointing him director for life. And they asked him why. And he said, I'd rather have him inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent. <laughs> um, to be held in such fear by everyone uh i don't think makes it possible that somebody blew would blow the whistle so you you talk about hoover's image and you know obviously many people feared him but to many americans i'm assuming just white americans or mostly white americans he was he was almost heroic you know movies were made about him he was clean cut he was white obviously he was male but wayne see see this is where you i think you're wrong i was a young black man in 64 and i thought he was heroic i mean i watched all wow. those, i watched all those old movies about the fbi you know big jim mcclain with john wayne the fbi story with jimmy stewart I brought, I brought into that TV show on ABC, for example, Junior, the FBI. I thought the FBI was the cat's pajamas, man. I thought they were fantastic. <laughs> you know, Sam, I think you and I are of the same generation. And, you know, you talked about the images you had in your house growing up. Um, and as the, the son of an Irish Catholic woman and a Yankee father, my mother was, you know, daughter of immigrants. We had Jesus in our house and we had Kennedy in our house, JFK. Yeah. You know, yeah. so these, these are icons. And, you know, I, I do have memories going back to the 60s, the early 60s of Hoover. And, you know, being a young young person didn't, you know, really obviously didn't know any of this was going on. But you're right. He was 
you know, he was like John Wayne, you know, running the FBI for for yeah, longer, but right. he had, that image was really powerful. Is what I'm driving at here. Yeah, it was. Well, yeah, and you know, and also, you know, to move to move it out just a little more broadly, it, it's not it's not entirely an, an anachronism. The mythology about the FBI. I mean, there's a show called the FBI on Sunday Night Network Television now. So it, it's not something that our culture has entirely gotten beyond. Exactly. Exactly. No, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And well, we've seen that play out in real time, you know, during the last four years. And Well, in the last year in particular, we saw uh, massive uh, civil rights protests in the cities of America uh, from coast to coast, quite literally. We've also seen real extremist movements uh, materialize and even storm the United States Capitol. I wonder if your understanding of the history of the 1960s and the role of the FBI and uh, not just surveilling, but actually interacting with uh, protest movements in that era gives you any particular insight about what the appropriate role of federal law enforcement should be given today's challenges. Well, here's my reaction, Jim. I, listen, I, I think it's very difficult for, for us to say that the FBI is going to always do the right thing. I mean, what is their job? Their job is to monitor any organization, be it on the left or the right, that they feel may, what, undermine the notion, their notion, their philosophy of American democracy. You know, so it could be white extremists or it could be, you know, people from black activist organizations. The challenge to me for the FBI is to be able to look at these organizations and to be able to see that and understand that, you know, you need activism for there to be change in America and you shouldn't be frightened of it. I mean, sometimes you should be, but sometimes you got to be able to monitor it. The thing, the question I ask about the FBI today, particularly when it comes to January 6th, with all of the tools at their, at their, at their fingertips, you know, and all the things that they can do now in terms of surveilling and monitoring extremist organizations, how come they seem to be late to the party for January 6th? I mean, to me, that's a big question, you know? I mean... The FBI and, and other law enforcement organizations were not late to the party when the Black Lives Matter people were protesting in D.C. in August, but all of a sudden they seem to be late to the party for January 6th. I, 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 I'm a little confused. Yeah, I, Sam, I think a lot of people are. Do you even have a theory as to why that might be? Obviously, you're not inside the FBI. What's your, what's your hypothesis? Here's my hypothesis, is that America, the, the hypocrisy of America is that if, if people don't look like them, you know, they're nervous about them. When people look like them, they say, well, it can't be but so bad, you know. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you, you've seen those pictures of the, of, the, of the National Guard out in force in front of the Capitol building? Sure, of course. The, nobody, none of those Black Lives Matter protesters could have gotten through. But all of a sudden, you know, you see no force, National Guard force out in front of the Capitol. And the, and the people on January 6th were just able to bombard the place. And because there's this mindset in America that when they look like you, you say they're not so bad. I mean, don't you remember, G. Wayne, watching these old Westerns when they were going to lynch, you know, lynch a, white, a black man or a bad guy? And the, and, 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 the, and, the, and the peace officer would say, guys, don't do it. It's not going to be right. And he would just sometimes step out of the way and let them do it. That's America, man. <laughs> no, you're right. And, and look, it's been America for, for hundreds of years. Hundreds I mean, of years. Look, look, at what, look at what white Europeans thought of the people they found 
Native Americans whose land yeah. it was for centuries before. They didn't look like them. And we know about the genocide and, and the continuing, yeah, the continuing mistreatment of yeah. indigenous American people. It's it's disgraceful, but it's the American story, though. But it's also the story of this notion, and it takes place in the world, it's this notion of us against them. If you don't look like me, you don't talk like me, there's a problem. And I just worked on this series called Why We Hate. And that's one of the things I learned in this series. There's always this us against them thing that builds and builds and builds that leads to war. We see it in Israel. We see it. We see it in, in Bosnia. We see it every place. You know, has why we hate been broadcast or shown? Or it, yeah, it was on Discovery. Oh, I'll have to check I'll it out. It sounds, good. it sounds great. Hey Ben, uh, we've got to talk about 2027. So uh, uh, the 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 well, I'll let you describe what happens in 2027. Uh, sure. But yeah, it's it's a long story. But when the when Congress investigated surveillance in the, in the 70s, there was a lawsuit brought and the federal judge in 1977 um, ordered the tapes that the FBI made surveilling King to be placed under seal for 50 years. So when that seal is lifted, I mean, I, I suppose the president or the director of the National Archives could keep them hidden. I'm not sure uh, for what defensible reason. So it you know, we're all prepared for this enormous release of, of tapes of King um, in 2027. And, um, you know, I, I think that the only, you know, the only proper attitude to have is just, um, you know, anything, anything is possible. Um, it, you know, it's, it's possible that we already know everything. And this is just additional texture and shading. It's possible there's that there's some stuff on there that, you um, is is very incriminating um and does change our view of dr king perhaps but it's and um it's also possible that it's nothing happens that the tapes um you know don't particularly they're, they're just hard to understand and they're yeah. you know they're full of static and they're full of um you know a lot of a lot of people in a room so you know for me it's like i don't know stuff got declassified while we were making this film and so I sort of learned that just, you know, a, a moderate skepticism is the only stance that you can have. Sam, I, I, Sam I'm curious your thoughts about, uh, you know, the film starts with, uh, or early in the film, you interview a historian who, who you put the question to, are you, are you essentially uh, doing uh, the FBI's job 50-something years later uh, by talking about this. Is, should these tapes be released? Are we are we doing a disservice to MLK and his legacy by even talking about this? Well, here, here's, my, here's my, my answer to that question, Jim. If the tapes haven't been doctored or edited, so only the, you know, this, this, this stuff about his relationships with women are on those tapes, then I'm curious to listen to them. Because I think if they are not edited, you know, there may be some revelations about King's discussions with people like Ralph Abernathy or Andy Young or Dorothy Cotton, anyone who was with him in these cities talking about the strategies. Now, if the FBI really edited these tapes so you only get the, the stuff about King's scandalized, supposedly scandalized behavior, then I don't want to hear those. You know? yeah. So that's my question. I, I don't have an issue with them being released if they haven't been edited. You know? That's fair. Guys, I'm, gonna have to, I'm gonna have to jump off. Well, we're just about out of time. Real quick, the, uh, where can people see MLK FBI if they haven't seen it yet? 
at your neighborhood theater. At your neighborhood YouTube. theater. Uh, and it's, Amazon. It's streaming and on Amazon, Amazon too, right? So, and, and Sue on. Pollard, Ben Hedin, thank you so much for being with us. That's all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can visit us on Facebook or Twitter uh, or visit PellCenter.org to catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.